This is Writers Not Writing, the show where you can get to know your favorite writers and soon-to-be favorite writers by listening to them confess to the ways they procrastinate. Thanks for procrastinating with us. I'm Benjamin Gorman, and the quiet guy behind the glass there is Doug the producer. I write novels and collections of poetry and stuff. Doug tries his best to make me sound better. And each week we have a secret word to listen for. If you catch it, you earn the right to take an extra break at the time of your choosing from whatever is stressing you out. From Not A Pipe Publishing, welcome to Writers Not Writing. Today's secret word is Kualu. Welcome, everyone. Today's guest is Talia Levin. Talia is the author of Culture Warlords. Talia also writes a substack about politics and sandwiches called The Sword and the Sandwich. And if you don't understand what swords and sandwiches have to do with each other, you really need to get to know Talia because it will make total sense. Uh, it is, uh, yes, I, I I love the the substack. In fact, I love the uh, interview you had with the woman from The Guardian. What was her name? Uh, Moira Donegan, yeah. That was, that was such a, a good part. interview. Yeah, it was great. It was digging into the crisis in American feminism. Where do we go from here? Well, and if folks subscribe, they can read any uh, uh, one going forward. But if you want to be able to read the archives, you want to read the one we're, we're just talking about, you are going to have to uh, subscribe for that uh, that that uh, newsletter. But it is fantastic, the Substack. So The Sword and the Sandwich. Highly recommend. Worth your time. So as everybody who watches the show knows, the the you know, we always dress up in these fantastic costumes for the show because we want to, you know, we know it's a visual medium. And so, but for the folks on the podcast, we have to describe them. So we have to let folks know what we're wearing. So Talia, why don't you tell everybody what you chose to dress up in for the show? Um, I am dressed in a full suit of armor, which is very hot because it's 90 degrees. Surrounded by swords, I'm on a golden throne, and I am just looking absolutely prepared to engage in a war of words or or otherwise. And the the I mean, you're living. Where do you live? You're in New York, right? Uh, yeah, I live in New York. Yeah. And and so the golden throne in that humidity, I would think, would be a little unpleasant. Like you need, you know, that's. Is it a comfortable chair today? I'm thinking that. Oh, looks... absolutely not. I don't think thrones in general are designed for comfort. Uh, you know, beauty is pain. Uh, and pain is beauty when you really like swords. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Um, yes, I have, uh, you know, uh, I got a, a less impressive suit of armor. This is the same one I wore uh, when I had Elliot Kalin on the show. Uh, and and so it's it's on loan from the University of, or not from the University, from the Museum of Art in uh, in Cleveland, uh, which is a fantastic museum. Folks should check it out. Um, and it is a child suit of armor. I'm not a very big guy. So I've got this child suit of armor on uh, from uh, one of the the French kings. I would have to look it up. Uh, but uh it's it's it is you know i i am clearly too large for this child suit of armor so i don't think i'm going to do anything but like parade uh behind you as you go into battle and then i'm going to rush back to uh, to safety but yeah uh here here in the in the studio uh doug is laughing at me because this suit, this suit is it's also going to be clanky so doug's going to have to edit out any noise that we make if i move around so i'm going to try and hold very still um how's it going today before we even get into the show <laughs> how are you doing I'm so stressed out. So what's your, this, do you have a self-imposed deadline or is this a- imposed Oh no, deadline? if it were a self-imposed deadline, I'd just blow it. 
but no, it's it's very much like there's a book contract on the line. It's a lot, and I'm the writing isn't going well, and it's. Uh, what's and this is the book about. What's this, this is book two. This is the book about the Christian right. Oh uh, yeah, and it's a huge topic, and I'm freaking yeah. out. Just freaking out. Just absolutely losing my mind. So it's nice to be on a podcast about losing your mind, but not finding. It's mostly been reading deranged books. That's been a lot of the research. I can imagine. Well, and the the deeper you plumb into the kind of theological underpinnings, sometimes the scarier it gets. Like, you know, I I was raised in the church. Uh, There's a lot of you know, lovely, kind people who have no idea why they believe what they believe. And, you know, then you get deeper and deeper into it and you go, this is some scary ass shit. (laughs) There's, you know, stuff that seems innocuous. Uh, A lot of Calvin's economics are really terrifying when you learn about just how the the kind of cruelty of of Calvinism, (laughs) you know, like, sorry, you were fucked from the day you were born and poverty is what you should expect. And the wealthy are just better than you. Like, that's a scary notion, you know, they're elect and they get to be rich. And so, you know, a lot of our economic system is rooted in this idea that this is all deserved, you know, which is really mortifying. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the book is focused on evangelicals of various denominations or non-denominational mm-hmm. evangelicals. Um, to me, it's like, yes, there's problematic shit, the Protestant work ethic, Calvinism, all yep. the stuff sort of baked into the landscape of America. Christians completely invisible to the fact that they live in a Christian hegemonic country with every single assumption uh in public life based on in principles of christianity as a jew like you just constantly feel like an alien yeah well and navigating this stuff but um the stuff that i tell themselves they're the most oppressed like we spent our time learning about martyrs in ancient rome and going oh yeah we are still living in this incredibly repressive society and we're the victims and there's been there's not been a kind of cultural shift to Oh, we're we're the dominant, you know, the 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 numbers are with us. Like the, the, I'm sure you'll meet these, you know, Christians online who are still saying we're the most threatened around the world. And that's why we have to behave this way, you know, which is will meet. No, yeah, I have yes. <laughs> run into constantly. Yes. Yeah, no, I mean and it's actually something that I, I came across a lot in book one, which is about explicitly fascist mindsets, but it's always the sense of, um, you know, victimhood mm-hmm. uh, is as a, an excuse for aggression. Yep. And the existence of people who live differently and want different things is an attack. Yeah. And 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 renders the excuse. And so right now we're living through like a lot of news cycles where like, oh, if trans people just hadn't been so aggressive about wanting. Yes human rights they and we wouldn't be forced to 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 backlash it's it's very common uh it's sort of variously theologically rooted i think one thing that really bothers me really bothers me that i hate 
when nice liberal Christians just call everyone who disagrees with their beliefs not a real Christian. Yes. Really people who are specifically right now and quite successfully engaged in a process of imposing a right-wing Christian theocracy across the United States, which is what my book is about. Yeah. Very heavy topic. But I mean, it feels like pooping bricks. Using, um, it's just not going well. But uh, at any rate, it's like it's a no true Scotsman fallacy. It's just like so. Okay, so so various popes that ordered pogroms, like they weren't Christian, right? You know, various uh people, like all the people doing horrible things in the name of Christianity aren't Christian. It's very concrete. You know, they just didn't read what Jesus wrote. First of all, I don't believe in Jesus. Right. I'm I'm not in the business of of uh, you know, determining whose theology is most correct. Nor is that my position. But also, you're really absolving yourself of responsibility here. That's what it really is. Yes, I can I can avoid any reflection and my own you know uh, uh, responsibility in this by saying I'm one of the good ones, and they're all the all the people doing harm. All the harm is caused by the people doing, you know, not getting it. And I have no responsibility in this. And and it's hard. because right, And it's like, believe, oh, obviously, you know, they're misinterpreting Jesus. Well, they don't right. think they are. Right. And right. given that their theology is more impactful than yours at this point in time, you know, politically, like perhaps you owe it to yourself and you certainly owe it to the many, 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 many people uh, affected by this this uh rising theocratic movement to reflect on how you can dismantle christian hegemony and how like you you know i just find the act of disclaiming very cowardly and also historically inaccurate and also it's just like okay so you're noping out of this and you're leaving all the people who aren't christian to just you know fight this alone thanks appreciate it well and there is a textual process by which people within a particular church are supposed to confront other people in a church you're supposed to go to that person one-on-one and say you're doing it wrong and then you're supposed to go two of you and say you're doing it wrong and then you're supposed to bring that person before the church and say this person is doing it wrong they're out and so what i say to the folks who are going you know well they're they're just misinterpreting have you talked to them about that have you taken somebody else have you kicked them out of the church? If not, you're doing it wrong. Like you have an obligation within your faith system to get this out of your faith system. You can't just nope out of it and say, I'm I'm not responsible because they're misinterpreting. Then what are you going to do about it? You have a, you know, an obligation within, you know, and I always say, and I'm out, like, I am not a Christian. This is not my thing. I'm not going to get into the who's getting Jesus right. I'm not a believer. But you do say you believe. So what are you doing to clean up your church that's causing all this harm? Otherwise, it is on you. Like, and that's they—they they really don't like right. hearing that. They get very angry with me. <laughs> it's also just—it's also just—it's um, always scary to confront power. Mm-hmm. Mega churches of power. These, you know, Christian far right state legislators, governors. You know, they have tremendous power. And it's always scary to confront power. It's always easier to exclude yourself from the fight or, you know, in whatever way that you find to rationalize it. 
And I just find they're not real Christians to be exceptionally harmful and exceptionally common. Yeah. Uh, the I also find that it's it's a lot of ex-evangelicals or ex-people who've left the faith who like have done a lot of study of text and worked to work to dis, dis, disinter and disperse harmful beliefs not everyone but but some you know people engaged in that process of deconstruction that can confront christian hegemony from a place of deep knowledge and also from a place of like having recognized that they've internalized a lot of deep and horrible shit yes. including the anti-semitism that's like baked into garden christian garden variety christianity of all yep absolutely um but yeah that's i mean anyway i just feel like i'm like it's like at this point i've been so melodramatic about writing this book that and i've spent so much time complaining about it that i'm like i could have been writing the whole time but then you know that feeling when the writing isn't going well it's awful. Uh-huh. the swampy middle yep yeah and it's not even the swampy middle it's the swampy like rewriting the introduction according to external specifications that I feel confused about. It's like just a crappy point in the process. And usually, and I'm very lucky, like for me, my process is usually, I think, and I worry and I research and I contemplate and I, you know, read sources and I turn it over in my head. And then I sit down and like thousands of words pour out in an hour. And it feels great. I feel like my yeah. hands are on fire. They're skating across the page. In this case, because the worries are external and financial, a lot of the worries, you know, book writing is a business. It's not just pure art. Uh, it's just been so slow, so painful. Like I'm just dragging out every word and I, it's not my best. And I know it's dull and it's not good and I hate it like I, ah, like I hate the book I hate myself I wish literacy hadn't been invented I'm gonna go back and find Gildo <laughs> on Gutenberg I'm gonna Carmen San Diego every early iteration of the printing press it was a mistake to teach women to read like I've just like gone I'm like <laughs> I'm like I am so like ah. yeah, I have um, the luxury as a fiction author I don't have to worry about some historical event happening tomorrow that will suddenly, you know, alter the course of it. Whereas for you, that could be, I mean, I don't know if that's terrifying. I'm, I might be making this worse, but you could have something tomorrow that crystallizes this, that then, you know, invigorates the process. It, it might be a horror, <laughs> whatever happens tomorrow, you know, some right-wing evangelical. Uh, what was the guy in uh, um, Norway? What was his name who, uh, you know, uh, do you know what I'm Anders talking about? Breivik? Yeah, where... In his manifesto, he's making it very clear this is still a reaction to, I mean, it's just his misogyny. Like, this is misogyny, well, not just, but largely this was, I feel like I've lost control uh, as, you know, and I need, my country needs to be more misogynistic and then commits this absolute atrocity, right? You know, that uh, we live in a world where that could happen tomorrow here. I was at a 4th of July event and I had this horrible, like, you know, we're selling books at a booth. And I had this moment where I was like, we haven't had a terrible mass shooting at a fireworks display yet. Fuck. Yet. Like I was saying yet. Like this is going to happen, you know. And there there could be the right wing, uh, you know, uh, Christian massacre tomorrow that 
provides the manifest i mean not that we haven't had them but that provides the manifesto that is the text that gets you going see motherfuckers like i've been telling you you know and so how do you write the book in advance of that knowing that could that's that's the reality we live in that could happen tomorrow yeah i mean it's it's that's this is you crystallized a difficulty in writing books that are sort of about the current state of things especially because as you know, publishing is on like a year delay, usually. Mm -hmm. um, when I wrote my first book, Culture Warlords, it came out in November of 2020. And then January 6th happened a couple of months later. Yeah, It wound up goosing sales a bit because people were like, oh, yeah, yeah, like maybe we should. Maybe I should understand at, this thing. Maybe, maybe I should figure out what right wing terror is all about. Um Luckily, there's this convenient book that just got published all about it. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm certainly not hoping for anything horrible to happen. In my case, in, in this case, it's more like what terrible, like the Supreme Court's out for the summer, I think. So, um, yeah, good. Uh, for now, um, but it's, yeah, I mean, when you're writing about nascent theocracy, it's more like there's just crazy shit happening all the time. And I'm writing about some of the, wilder fringes but i'm also writing about how the fringe is now in the state house like there isn't really the comfortable divide between the crazies and the like sensible guys not that there ever were or was necessarily cleanly in american politics but i think whatever differentiation there was has largely collapsed or is like so infinitesimal as to be insignificant like i think a guy like ron DeSantis, you know is an extremist open oh, extremist yeah. oh yeah uh there are many state senators across the country some of whom are like wild uh but uh, you know you have greg abbott is an extremist like so these very mainstream figures like have very deep roots and very extremist theology have allies with you know, very extreme groups. And so how do you write about this without seeming alarmist? How do you write about this in a way that's like deeply researched and and reflective and also the prose sings? It's a lot to like yeah. ask. <laughs> and of I do wonder with a person like DeSantis is a good example. How much of it is his ideology? How much of it is him leaning into what will be rewarded? And what does it tell us that we can't tell the difference anymore? That he's working in a, uh, you know, a, a, a media ecosphere and a, and a right wing, you know, uh, sphere that the most, because he is, the, the guy's policies, I mean, he's a full on fascist, like he is a systematic, I want to put these policies in place that do the maximum amount of harm. And yet how much of that is? Because that's what's going to get me attention and get me the, you know, the, the votes and how much of that is, this is what I've always wanted to do. You know, Stephen Miller, like who, you know, even when it was unpopular, was willing to be a, an absolute horror show. Is, is DeSantis going, that looks good? Or is he saying, this is what I've always wanted to do? And the fact that we can't tell, what does that say about that media ecosphere? And that, you know, and so I don't know if there's any, tr you know, tracing his stuff to see, is this rooted in something or is this opportunism and what does it say that the opportunism it benefits fascism now you know Ugh, but it's 
it's I mean, I mean yeah I mean for me the question of internal motivations and hearts and you know what what does he really think is this grifter just setting out like is you know any given right wing grifter setting out to fleece of fleece the flock or or does he genuinely believe this and my my answer is usually yes yeah. like yep well and I always say you know impact is greater than intent like ultimately yeah, yeah, yeah. He, I mean I think it, I think it doesn't matter. Yeah. It matters very little to me as a human and as a writer. Like, I'm not really interested in interrogating that question. Like, yeah. you can talk about the motivations, and that's interesting. Like the echo chamber you mentioned. Um, but to me, yeah, impact is is so much more important than intent. And and it's always the people who are the most privileged and the most harmful whose intent we examine with sort of the most uh incipient generosity right and so i wouldn't ask it to absolve him but i would ask it to 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 you know to to interrogate what is deeply wrong with this culture right not that this excuses his behavior at all if you were leaning into fascism in an opportunistic way you're just as awful like the harm is just as real but what does it say about a system that rewards that? Like that they have gotten to the place where they're going, fascism is the way to go. There was this great uh, book that I read about the history of fascism, one of the, uh, by a professor out of, I believe he was out of Yale. And- uh, Snyder? Was, uh, I could be. Um, but he probably was saying Timothy that- Snyder's book. Yeah, uh, probably. And and the, the point that like jumped out at me is fascists when in power never have an incentive to make the lives of their constituents better. It's always to make the lives of their constituents worse. Because if you need the support of people and you've said, the only reason to support me is I'm the bulwark against your misery, you have to keep those people as miserable as possible. And so it's never, you know, they're not, and so then we as liberals go, but they're voting against their own self-interest. This is so crazy. The things that this person's gonna do aren't gonna help them. That was never the point. It's to activate their misery and then keep them miserable. And that was, I was like, oh, that makes a lot more sense. Like they have no, not even, there's no desire to improve lives. And we say, how, you know, like we don't get it. Like, how is it that this this politician is, is still maintaining support when they're not improving the lives of their people? They were never even trying. That's not the point. They want to keep them as miserable and outraged as possible. And that was well, I think the outraged is the key point. Yeah. You know, you keep people immiserated and you keep pointing at you yep. know targets. Yep. Uh and saying this is the reason for your immiseration. Yeah. Um rage is like the principal tool uh here, you know, the operant tool here, um, as far as I can tell. Um rage and uh cruelty and and uh a kind of sadism, you know, a desire to hurt the right people as a Trump voter um, memorably put it in like a 2018 feature in the Times, you know, he was mad at Trump because he, quote, wasn't hurting the people he's supposed to be hurting. Uh-huh. And that's just really stuck with me. Yeah. Um, and especially when you're looking at it from a Christian right perspective, once you understand that control is the primary goal like absolute control yep then you begin to understand things a little better i mean i try to like my books aren't about scoops they're not really breaking news which is anyway i think 
like a book is a bad way to go over that. Uh, there, I'm going to try to examine the psychological, historical, theological motivations um, of these kinds of phenomena with the goal of having something that will still provide insight a couple of years later. Yeah. Well, and I, I find them very, well, I find uh, culture warlords very helpful. I, I find that interrogation, once you get into, once I as a reader realize, oh, th these these motivations are layered and you start to learn about the layers, I mean, because it's always anti-Semitism at the bottom, which I did not understand. Like, I had to find this, I don't know if I sent you an email about this. I read Culture Warlords after doing this horror show deep dive after the uh, the Pittsburgh synagogue uh, shooting and trying to figure out like what the what the fuck what is the connection here and reading about a lot of the same stuff that you covered about the elders you I know mean, why are these why is our white supremacy culture so enmeshed with anti-semitism and then learning about that and 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 now you know once you have seen that you can't unsee it um and it is the 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 can i think the seeing the connections is very helpful like to understanding before it was just uh, so much of what i was reading was just just made no sense and now it makes a horrible sense if that makes any sense like oh, oh yeah now i, I see mean the connections yeah i think understanding is knowledge is power blah 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 but like if you're looking to understand and if you're looking to to defeat a foe like understanding them is is important I, even as a far-right reporter, like, I had always known anti-Semitism was the key, but not necessarily known why or just, like, how deep it went. And exploring the history of anti-Semitism in America and just the role that anti-Semitism plays in white supremacist movements and their sort of more politically mainstream sort of buddies or or shadows or parallels or whatever you want to call it. I mean, and and in the years since writing the book, I've, like, kind of been continuing to think about it like the two things that feel salient to me are just like, first of all, anti-Semitism, like the ancestors of modern anti-Semitism date back to like the ninth century. But I'm talking about specifically, I think the first, and I mentioned this in the book, but like the first sort of, um, not just like we hate Jews because they dress different and they and we think they smell like garlic and we're going to kill them. Uh, the idea that Jews are like meeting up in secret to plot to organize people of color, right? right? The, the, it's that connection that they are secretly behind the 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 potential rebellion of people of color who by themselves well, wouldn't do it. But that's you know the connection between the race war and the Jews as the secret cabal organizing that is right. Then I'm talking about the the antecedent, right? Like so, you have. That this it was this uh, the, this blood libel yes um pogrom um in I think it's currently the Italian town of Trentino there was a young boy named Simon of Trent who died um and this was sort of the blood libel like persisted for several thousand years but it was this idea that the Jews were originally it was that Jews were uh, killing Christian children and drinking their blood in a perversion of the sacrament. Then it became Jews are, you know, putting blood in their 
matzah and Passover. I, that passage was one of the few where I l- l- laughed out loud in your book. <laughs> I was like, these people have clearly never had matzah before. <laughs> yeah, like it's not blood pudding. It's just, it's it's, it's, it's very, quite quite dry. <laughs> yeah, like, and also we have a strict prohibition against eating blood, but whatever. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> not at all kosher. But it's this is the 1100s, and what you had then was a series of pamphlets that came out. Simon of Trent was canonized. The Jews of Trentino were all murdered. Um, And more to the point, a series of pamphlets that, that were publicized throughout the Christian world of Europe alleged that Jews met up in secret um, uh, and had a king of the Jews, which we never have. Uh, that's Christians invented that and put Jesus in that role, but we don't have a king. Um, or maybe there was a King David thousands and thousands of years ago. But, um, but, the, after, but every yeah. year they would pick a child to sacrifice in this perversion of the sacrament. And that, and we're talking about the 1100s here. And that, not only is that the temp- template for the rest of anti-Semitism across all of time, the idea of the shadow of cabal, the idea of eating in secret for nefarious purposes. It also is the template for conspiracy theory in general in the Western world. It is the prototype, um, the shadowy cabal. And so that's why there's a wonderful um, graphic that talks about like conspiracy theories and what's that all about. And and it's sort of constructed as a pyramid and then like sort of roughly in the middle is this anti-semitic point of no return because you you can't get that deep into conspiracy without um hitting the prototype the the template i mean i remember (laughs) going to like a flat earth message board because i was just curious and you know post like three on the message board was like nasa is a jewish plot right Right. We, like, uh, oh, you mean the guys who like secretly hired Werner von Braun? Like, okay, sure. Like, MK Ultra was like created by, by like Vanderbilts out of Yale. Like, fuck off. But anyway. Well, but it explains um, why something like the whole QAnon thing was rooted in this. The these Democratic politicians are bathing in blood, and it's like, where would you get this bathing in blood thing? Oh, because they're doing it at the behest of. George Soros because it's really blood libel, right? It always is the same conspiracy. Like it's, you know, and so reading it from the outside, you're like, Pizzagate, what the fuck does Pizzagate have to do with anti-Semitism? And it's rooted as anti-Semitism. Like it always comes back. I'm not saying that it's like, for me, then it became how does anti-Semitism function? And it has a very unique function. It is it is an explanatory function. It's an yeah. armature. It's, why doesn't the world operate in the way that I want it to? Why aren't these principles such as, you know, homophobia is unnatural, trans people should all die, you know, people of color are naturally uh, dumb and subservient. Why isn't the world, like, you know, women should be constantly pregnant and and non-employed and any woman who's too mouthy should die. I mean, their misogyny is throbbing, but it's like, why doesn't the world operate the way I think it should? And the answer is a shadowy Jewish cabal. I mean, that's always the answer. It's cliche. It's like, like if, you know, it's like 
if you bubbled in A on, on every question in a multiple choice test and it was right, because the answer is always it's a shadowy Jewish yep. call. Um, but it, it serves this explanatory function and it serves the same explanatory function across like a whole bevy of conspiracy theories. Um, even if it's sort of veiled in some, but then like scratch the surface and it's not that veiled. I mean, this even appears in, in turf rhetoric, like the, the anti-trans movement disappears. You know, it, it's just like, once you see it, yeah, like you said, you can't unsee it. It's there. It's everywhere. But they always um, start with this Because patina. it's the template. It's the OG. Right. Right. But they always start with a patina that sounds almost the opposite. So, you know, like the whole turf movement is we are protecting, uh, you know, uh, women in women's spaces. Well, that sounds great. You know, and then it's so we have to harm, uh, you know, trans women. Whoa, whoa, OK, now we've gone to this much darker place. Why? And then you get deeper and it's always because, you know, and it's Jews. trans rights activism was being funded by secretive yeah ne a secretive network of jewish billionaires i mean it, it's literally like scratch a turf find find a racist find something like it's not hard. i mean in general i think if you find someone who centers their identity on like being cruel to my a minority group like yep you know that yep. that As usually was... carries over to other spheres and is equally uh shitty yeah. In, in all well i and you know a parallel kind of descent of conspiracy is uh as as i was losing my christian faith and i was kind of going through and and grasping and i think a lot of folks do this as they're kind of losing their faith they're going but i want to hold on to this and you hear this you know but well they're not the real christians because i want to hold on to jesus's teachings they those seem pure and then as you kind of lose that bit by bit and you go wait okay but this is still fucked up and this is really problematic what i found was it all the interpretations and all the kind of debates within christianity theologically if you if you separated yourself from those debates and said which of the two positions will most favor the people in charge and keep everyone else controlled that's the position that's going to win and it, I mean, you know, and so the, the, the text itself is manipulated over time to become the text that is maximally controlling of the, the, the people, uh, you know, who are going, I don't know, the, the people in charge say this is what it means, you know, and who get, to, why do they get to decide what it means? Because again, that gives them power. Like, and, and so it allowed me to kind of go, oh, I understand why this the, the this thing that was presented to me as uh you know th this 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 lovely community having uh you know potlucks and and singing songs together and you know sharing food which is beautiful is built on this foundation of but we have to make sure you are doing what you are told and these people are in charge and uh and and it and it kind of maps to the because these people will tell you who is evil in the world and responsible for all the problems in your life and you know those like the deeper you go the more and more grim that gets uh and gets down to the same roots so it's it's scary yeah. to watch i mean i don't want to denigrate anyone who, who finds faith as a, a comfort i just think i left to faith you left to faith there are elements of critical thinking that you employ when you do that but 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 i i'm not in the interest of denigrating all religion i just 
want to know why the people who want me to be relegated as a to a second class citizen because of the genitals I was born with and the you know ethno religion I was born into and you know the people who want to establish this deeply harmful eliminationist theocracy want to do that um and yeah like you know mutatis mutandis you can apply lessons all, all over the place but i'm interested in the project of building a theocracy in america what does that look like? um i i also think that some people who have left faiths particularly christians who have left faiths tend to establish this anti-theist position that can flatten different religions that operate on different models yeah which is not to say that like most religions don't have oppressive hierarchies but that there is nuance there are there's historical and social context different faiths operate differently among different communities in different countries and sort of flattening it all under this sky daddy bad everything's stupid like it's a, yeah. you gotta unpack some of your stuff no i totally I'm very sensitive to that because, uh, you know, I, I I don't consider myself an atheist. I think a lot of folks, when they leave a faith, are become like, and I'm like, no, I'm I'm an agnostic. I am dogmatic about the fact that I don't know. <laughs> you know, I don't pretend to know. But one of the things I try and do is tease out what is the difference between the theology and the 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 power structure within that particular religious group, and. Often the thing that I rankle against, which causes the the kind of systemic oppression, is not the beliefs. The beliefs are almost ancillary to who is benefiting from an interpretation that empowers the priesthood, you know. And 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 so I find it. I am. I don't. I don't feel comfortable saying somebody's metaphysical beliefs are incorrect. Like I, I don't feel comfortable weighing in on that. But when the power structure is saying these are the following groups of people we're allowed to oppress based on our story, who benefits from your oppression, right? Who is the 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 group of people who are saying if we tell you to oppress, then you will listen to us, and we get that 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 hierarchy. And you're right, you know, lots of different faith systems. Really, it's not just the faith systems; it's religious groups within a, a country, within a legal framework, within a culture, get to create that power hierarchy differently. And it, it would be, you know, really inappropriate to say, therefore, this religion does this incorrectly when it's that religious group where and in what power structure and in what legal framework, you know, it's 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 far more complicated than this er text creates oppression. You know, it's yeah. I mean I, I think also at this point, like irritating atheists who don't realize they're just inverted evangelical Christians yes. are like the least of our worries. Uh, it's just something that I've encountered and found unhelpful. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, but I call them know, evangelical atheists. <laughs> I think they've been yeah, right. the same I way mean, a lot it's, of the time. It is, it is a certain mindset. But I think obviously, they said theocracy, it, you know, ascendant theocracy rather, it, it is the larger social. Problem. I just think there are more effective ways to combat it. Yeah. So, Talia, I know you have been working on a book, and at the same time, it's a show about procrastination. What has been keeping you from your work lately? I find that when I'm in a state of high anxiety, as I currently am, uh, what I turn to are things that comfort me. 
which, you know, I think is, is not that unique. Um, but in this case, I found this adorable podcast called The Poisoner's Cabinet. It's so cute and wonderful. And it's these two Brits. I think one is British and one is Irish. And they get together and they make these themed cocktails um, and then talk about various murders, usually Victorian cases that have been covered in like the penny dreadfuls. They're very smart. They've read a lot of Dickens. They they heavily sourced and and usually quite drunk by the end of the podcast. Um, <laughs> and it's just lovely. I mean, I find it very soothing. That's why I've been like binging it. And then um, I have played an obscene amount of uh, The Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom, just like to degrees. Like I've found all the light roots. I've found all the shrines. I have like 400 Koroks. <laughs> and now I'm like, you know, I'm delaying and delaying the final fight by, like, trying to... At this point, most of the missions that I have left are, like, very tedious checklists. So I'm like, okay, maybe I should just suck it up and, like, beat Ganondorf, but, uh... And and and, and let it go, but I, I don't want to let it go yet. Are you... So are you playing with it connected to your TV, or are you playing it on the Switch, you know, so that it's going with just, you? Just, like, curled you up on the Switch in, like, a dark corner of a room, like, feeling nothing but shame as I attach various gliac horns to weapons. But you're, but you're building, I mean, no shame, you know, you're building, you're constructing, there's, there's a lot to that game, and I understand it is absolutely beautiful, like, the actual graphics are, you know, so you get to spend time in this world constructing and being, you know, being, being, uh, uh, you know, a, a person doing doing good and also doing good work you know I, I i think there's merit to that i would say that it's not it, it's very again it's all about just like putting myself in this cocoon of like being soothed i also played this game called slay the spire which i have on my phone and switch uh that's sort of um like a card based combat game where you're and it's a roguelike where you're kind of following the same map over and over and over but it gets harder and harder and it's slightly different every time and i just lose every time and um you'd think you get tired of it but no someday i'll win <laughs> um so a lot of gaming a podcast just like i think because i find the writing so taxing at this moment like i'm just like please like just just swaddle me in things that make me feel okay um but of course procrastination makes you feel worse it's like it's a so the more stressed i get about the procrastination the more i want to soothe myself it's this hideous vicious cycle well, and, you know, maybe someday you can write about how, uh, you know, the, the connection between Slay the Spire and, uh, you know, anti-fascist activism. <laughs> no, I doubt it. And frankly, <laughs> there's a thing as a writer, everything's content, right? But like, you have to have things that you preserve to yourself. But you I am thinking about the, the, you know, the, the, the process of going to, to work doing something you know you will not succeed at <laughs> feels a lot like, uh, like the, the struggle for justice in the world. Like, we keep trying. And, you know, so maybe you're you're preparing yourself, uh, you know, emotionally. Oh, God. Oh, come on. What are you, the Fantastic <laughs> Four? You're Stretch Armstrong? Yeah, that, uh, that is a stretch. That's a bit of a stretch. Uh, yeah, no, but I, 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 I appreciate it. 
there is a quote from the Talmud that I used as a dedicate. It's a very basic, like very cheesy Jewish quote that pops up a lot. Uh, in Hebrew, it's Lo Alecha Hamlecha Ligmor, Beloata Benachorin Ligmatelmimena, which is like, it's not, you are not obligated to complete the work, but neither are you permitted to uh, sort of excuse or remove yourself from it. Uh, like, in other words, you go in trying to fix the world, you should not expect that you will be able to complete creating a just and and magnificent utopia of, you know, the milk of human kindness. Um, but you are not permitted to not engage in that struggle at all. And I kind of use that as a bit of a guiding light. But again, it's like very cheesy. It'll show up yes. all the time. No, I, I have a friend of mine who is a rabbi who she says that all the time. It's like at the bottom of every email. It's a good thing to have as a kind of constant reminder. <laughs> like, you know, hey, remember. Uh, that's yeah, that's but it is that's it's a hard reminder. <laughs> it's the, the reminder it you is. don't want I mean, to hear. It's, it's it's Jewish pragmatism right there, but it's like, you know, again, like I think mm, tamping down your expectations from the get is useful. <laughs> um, and also the reminder of like, just because you're not going to be Link the hero saving all of Hyrule uh, doesn't mean that you can't, that, that you aren't obligated in your own way um, to engage in the struggle for a better world. It does make me wonder how much our, you know, fantasy literature, not just fantasy literature, really so many of our heroes journey kind of stories tell us here is the one person who did it, you know, and, and deceive us into thinking that that is the way that good work is done in the world is alone, you know, <laughs> and that is not, uh, yeah, that, you know, on the one hand, it is a nice vacation. Like it is good to tell stories that, uh, that, that are those, you know, the, the link stories, and on the other hand, is that good for us to constantly think I'm going to I, I maybe I should be doing this alone when, in fact, that's not how the good work is done. Speaking of doing it alone versus doing it with a group, you were saying you were reading a biography. I was reading you were reading the biography of Napoleon recently by uh, Andrew Roberts. Uh, yes. And then I felt too stupid to do that. And um, now I've been listening to the Poisoner's Cabinet instead. But I, I started the, the biography of Napoleon. I like falling asleep to audiobooks in general. It's sort of, I, I like just hearing a human voice so that I'll, like, I don't go into like anxiety spiral mode. <laughs> um, there cannot be silence in my brain. And so I was listening to this biography of Napoleon. I do think it's funny that his name is actually pronounced or was pronounced in Corsica where he was born. Napoleon ne buona parte. And like, he has a million you know, brothers and sisters that he installed as kings of various uh, countries that he conquered, and they're all like, Girolamo, Buonaparte, but then they get Frankified. Uh, I, I didn't even realize that. So everything would have been pronounced with that almost Italian? Yeah, yeah. Is, uh, is the Corsican a hybrid, or is it Italian? Would it have been an Italian? I think Corsican is like a dialect of Italian. I don't know. Don't get me in trouble. Um, but but I think Corsica, it's like he was very into Corsican nationalism as a youngster. And then they were a dozen to him because he was more carried away by the ideals of the French Revolution. Uh, but yeah, Corsica is this like Italianate identity and, and very much uh, Napoleon grew up speaking Corsican. French was a second language. Uh, and... 
Corsican has more in common with Italian, I want to say. I love the idea that that of all the things you've done in your career, this is what's going to get you in trouble. Oh, God. (laughs) Okay, it is a Romance language constituted by the continuum of the Italo-Dalmatian dialect spoken on the Mediterranean island of Corsica. It is related to the Tuscan varieties from the Italian peninsula and therefore also to the Florentine-based standard Italian. So it's a dialect of Italian. It is Italian. Okay. Okay. I can, I can dialect, just imagine that dialect, that gets Italian. you canceled. <laughs> Napoleon Bonaparte. <laughs> yes. Napoleon's name. Like, not, not all the actual work you've done. <laughs> Isn't that always, case. you know, uh, yes, canceled by rabid Napoleon fans. Just Corsicans. Um, just Corsicans. They're so angry at you. Oh, my God. Well, I, you know. <laughs> um, they should have accepted Napoleon as their leader, and then maybe we'd all be speaking Corsican. <laughs> Fair, yes, we would know for a fact that Corsican is Italian. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, uh, I've been doing a bit of that, and I have a standing intellectual interest in World War One and the way it's shaped the world. But right now, it's all on the back burner of like, fuck, I have to meet my deadline. I have to meet my deadline. I have to meet my deadline. I'm not going to meet my deadline. What am I going to do? Uh, why are like what am I gonna do? I'm gonna hide under the blankets and just pretend the world doesn't exist. I'm gonna play Zelda. Oh no, I have to meet my deadline. So that's 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 the spiral. I was doing some research this last week on the way World War One affected um the the continental philosophy that that you know post-World War One and the the kind of horror of the attempted suicide of Europe, you know, that that was really a, a, a an event that changed the way philosophers even tried to argue for kind of you know the, the the way human beings ought to treat one another and should expect the world to work like it totally jarred the world of philosophy in a really fascinating way it was a turning point um i'm less familiar with that i am very familiar with the way it changed the world of art so mm. like the dadaist movement arose during world war one and i've loved them since i was a teenager because really fit a teenage mindset of like all of this is really absurd but uh it's this um it, you know it arose during world, in the height of the battles of world war one these artists were like fuck impression uh, hmm, screw impressionism uh and all of these attempts to portray the beauty of the world at the moment we're living in a time of mass and senseless slaughter and so they began to produce this anti-art that was mm-hmm. consciously absurdist uh and ironically like then changed the face of art and so you had you know cubism and surrealism and all these movements that arose out of that initial surge of Dada saying no we're not going to create tranquil and beautiful scenes we're not even going to try to portray reality we're going to use abstraction we're going to use collage we're going to use you know absurd performance and and then it went on to just like absolutely change and and shape the face of 20th century art so you know world war one shaped the geography of the modern world it shaped the philosophy of the modern world it shaped the art of the modern world and it's sort of under the shadow of World War II, but like it not only laid the groundwork for World War II, but also like colonization of the Middle East by Britain and, you know, the way the the land is distributed in the Balkans, the, you know, um, just all sorts of things that you, like America as the dominant economic powerhouse of the 20th century, that comes from World War One. you know, there all kinds of things uh that were created during this 
the this first total war that I think gets sort of skipped over in American education at least. Yeah, I did. I would. I was not taught about it in that way in school, certainly. But yeah, I mean, in a way, it was almost like the anti enlightenment. Instead of let's create art that reflects the beauty of the world, let's create ethical systems that are logical and reasonable. Let's create you know art that is representational. It was like an anti renaissance. This is you know the, you know everything is absurd. Uh, uh, kind of a, a political pragmatism was more justified. We can go cut up the Middle East and do these things, and it, it's okay because you know real politique. I mean, a lot of that has its root in this sense of seeing madness and horror on that scale uh, was something that, yeah, that, that's I, I I do think we would do well to reflect more on how it changed our our day to day lives in the modern era. Um, yeah, I mean. <clears throat> Also, the not so minor fact of the uh, Bolshevik Revolution. One of the facts that I learned that I thought was uh, pretty great um, was that, like, the Germans, um, <laughs> the the Germans like shipped Lenin in to Saint Petersburg. They like he was in exile. They shipped him in in a closed train um, to. Um, uh, like in order to mess things up in Russia, which was allied against Germany, and like it really worked. Yeah. <laughs> it worked spectacularly well. The, 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 um, the, the Bolshevik revolution was literally a German plot, and then like very soon after attaining power, Lenin accepted like a very unfavorable treaty with Germany. So for all the people who uh, have subsequently sort of talked about. Uh, like how communism is a Jewish plot. I'm like, no, actually, you should be blaming Kaiser Wilhelm in a very direct way. Yes. Um, so that's my other uh take on matters. Um I had never heard yeah. that. That is fascinating. That yeah, I mean, and and it and it goes cuts against that whole, you know, this is this pure uh, uh, you know, communism was this pure ideological movement until it was corrupted by Stalin and until it was corrupted. Like, no, it, it's always been any any real movement trying to actually move a, a nation is going to get very dirty. <laughs> like, the the only way to be a perfect representative of any ideology is not to engage in any action. Yeah. Um, and that that applies to everything. Yeah. Which is also, if you have a, an ideology of, you know, taking some kind of action in the world, not engaging is also, uh, you know, unsatisfactory. So, like, there is no perfect, you know. Um, yeah. Speaking of not perfect, what has been taking your attention away from your writing in the news lately? This is a little bit of a gotcha or something um or or just like a cheat but it's been super hot and like then i looked it up and it's like yesterday was like the hottest day in the history of the world or something i'm like oh so like i i hate this weather my home could be better air conditioned by the way we're all going to roast to death and there's like absolutely no organized political movement um that uh you know, th that is standing against this in any particularly uh, efficient way. So 
Yay. Yeah, no, I mean, but it's, sorry, my answers are so bleak. No, I mean, I am, I'm, uh, uh, I've been, I'm a fan of audiobooks too, and I've been reading. I'm going to look up the author's name right now. I've been reading Wool by uh, Hugh Hugh Howie is the author. Hugh Howie's Wool. Uh, they've got this TV show version, uh, Silo, and I was hearing people say, "Oh, you really need to check out Silo," and it is based on this novel that had previously been recommended to me, you know, many times. And I was like, "Oh, man, maybe I should get around to that." But it's describing a future where everyone is living in a silo underground. And now we're experiencing the hottest July in the history of this planet. And I'm going, I, you know, as I am complaining, stepping outside into this horrific heat. And then I'm going, my grandchildren may someday wish they could see the sky. <laughs> How grim is that? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, part of the whole point of the show is to help our readers learn more about you. So imagine you, not not a character you want to play, but you yourself are a character in D&D. What would be your race and class? In the times I've played D&D, also considering this question, I would be a dwarf. Because dwarves are Jewish in fantasy, in all fantasy, and I'll die on this hill. Tolkien said so in an it's a, it's the, interview. The adopted children in the Silmarillion? Absolutely. Yes. Totally. No, he said he based Dwarfish off Semitic languages and, and was like, yeah, the dwarves are Jews. Well, and it's problematic uh, the way he made the dwarves Jewish, too, because they're not the chosen. They're chosen after the fact. Like, it's, yeah. Ugh. They love gold. Yeah. And uh, delve too greedily into deep. Yep. But still, I'm like, I'm reclaiming it. So I always play like a big titty dwarf in D&D consistently. Um, and so I think that would be who I would choose. And, and for character, for class, I don't know. I like rogue or barbarian. Um, In like video games, I'm always that person that's like, I guess I'll put on some like armor and like maybe like some defensive effects. But basically my strategy is like go in and just like wail on everyone um try to recover some health along the way and that's my strategy in D&D and video games and like arguably life in a certain sense I tend to rush in uh, with minimal preparation I'm, I'm, I'm the exact opposite I'm like I need to be the one with a bow and arrow because the monsters frighten me like I'm hiding back but I can totally imagine you as a barbarian because you get two swords like more swords right you know <laughs> yeah and also I mean wizard stuff and all the math is just too complicated for me like i don't want to have to memorize all the stuff i'm just like no like let me go in and and, and and tank as many hits as i need to and just smash them up that's more my vibe uh in 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 dnd and possibly in life i don't know i'm just like very moment to moment tackling the issues as they come up kind of a person that's a, that's an excellent strategy. Uh, my, it's good to pair up though. My my son is the same way. He goes in first, and so when we play together. I hang back, and you know we're we're a good team in that way. So somebody to to shoot the arrows over your shoulder, you know. Mm-hmm. So okay, yeah, my, my boyfriend is a doctor, and he he always plays wizard class because he like like yeah, memorizing stuff. I'm really good at it, and like I would like more complicated techniques, please. <laughs> That's, but that's a perfect pairing. You know, he stays back, he shoots the spells over your shoulder, and you expose all of the uh, the the monsters by charging in at first. Yes. So you've been ambushed now. These are level one goblins, three level one goblins. 
what do you do? I pull out my axe and I slash them to ribbons. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, just slash, slash, slash. Come on. Come on. It, it's straightforward uh, and effective. This is not a hard decision for me. I'm not, I'm not pulling <laughs> out my grimoire. I'm just like, pull out a gigantic axe and, and whack their heads off, please. And thank you. There you go. That, that'll do it. So, okay. So what have you been daydreaming about lately? What has been on your mind that may, you know, get into your work, but it's, it's just that, that thing you've been marinating in as you've been, uh, uh, you know, procrastinating lately. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of writing is thinking, I mean, I don't, I'm not a fiction writer. I don't know how fiction works, but I assume it's the same. I mean, for me, like most, I do a lot of research and then I ponder and like the pondering, I have like spent so much time beating myself up over the years over the fact that like sort of ambient pondering time is a part of my writing process, but it absolutely is. Ah. And obviously with a larger project like a book, that can, the amount of ponder time you need is sometimes larger than the amount of time you have to write. But um, I've been thinking a lot about religion, obviously, and power and belief. And um, I am fascinated by people's hunger to believe in something and the way that in and of itself is a motivation. Uh, the, cer- the certitude people get out of belief and the, the need that's persisted throughout all of human history for this kind of faith. Um, especially because it plays a minimal role in my life. Um, or at least possibly I have faith in stuff in ways that I haven't examined. <laughs> um, but I've been thinking about that a lot. And then the other thing, we've talked about this already, but World War One, and I did want to recommend if people are just like, what's the deal with World War One? I? I don't really know about it. A really great sort of first book to read about it is a World Undone by G.J. Meyer. Um, it's the story of the Great War, 1914 to 1918. And obviously that's a huge story. But if you want a book that will just really give you a sense of the contours of the conflict, also the um, repressions, that's a really great book to start with. Um, it really taught me a lot and that it was a very useful departure point to read all kinds of other books about World War One. Um, uh you know, including there's a, it was one of the first wars where there were like, there was a huge surfeit of memoirs also of like, mm. um, uh, people who had fought and came back. And wrote. a lot of these guys were English gentlemen who were officers and therefore not necessarily in like the trenches. Um, but my favorite of the World War One memoir genre, um, is this book called Palu. It's not available on audiobook, but it's P O I L U which was the general term for French soldiers in the way that Tommy's was sort of the general term for English soldiers. Um, and it means like a guy with a big beard because apparently the French didn't shave as much. Um, but anyway, it's by this like socialist guy who I think was like a It's basically at every battle that, that the French forces fought in and chronicles the sort of horror and absurdity and moments of transcendence in like a very lyrical way um but without sort of any of the pretense and the sort of 
effete melancholy of, of some of the more famous uh, World War One memoirs. So those are my two reps from my ambient, ongoing World War One obsession. And that is translated in English. That second one is in English as well. Yes, I don't read French. Okay. Um, I did go to Paris fairly recently and got to see the the grave of Marshal Foch, who was the leader of the the French forces in World War One, and uh, he's he's entombed in the same complex as Napoleon. And I was like, maybe I should get into the Napoleonic Wars, hence the biography of, of Napoleon. Um, maybe I'll finally get around to finishing War and Peace. Uh, <laughs> um, just because I think having a strong background in the Napoleonic Wars would make that book a lot more decipherable. Yeah, have you um, read... Um... I'm a nerd about history and military history, which I think is fairly unusual for, like, it's very dad-coded, so... Um, but I happen to think World War One is just absolutely endlessly fascinating. Um, and happily talk your ear off about it, but not your listeners. So, uh, <laughs> well, speaking of talking your ear off, have you read uh, Les Mis, uh, Les Miserables, the, the novel? The... I read parts of it as a kid, like an ambitious, very nerdy kid. Um, it sort of deterred me after a while. Yes. No, and the uh, part, there is a section where he is trying to justify why one villainous character is villainous and spends about a hundred pages explaining the Battle of Waterloo, which I think you would love as this description of this battle. But narratively, the whole thing is just to get to the point of, and this one bad character shows up at the end and he's stealing gold from the teeth of the corpses. It is, there's any modern editor would say, you don't need this hundred pages describing this battle, but if you're into the Napoleonic Wars, it's a fantastic description of this battle that goes totally wrong you know so yeah that that uh, that aside should be a novella in and of itself <laughs> just to say this this character's bad i'm i'm so I, I love the musical uh and i loved the movie of the musical i thought russell crowe was a perfectly fine javert um i like his first line and i'm javert <laughs> do not forget my name uh i'm i'm, I'm very much a, a lame is girl um i thought anne hathaway was fantastic it was great i made multiple boyfriends watch it in its entirety <laughs> um but yes i'm a big fan of Lee Miz, but i i as much as i love reading the thousand page novel feels a little bit daunting to me at this point in time um but i, I feel confident i'll circle back to it because every time i read a novel I feel I learned more about myself and like the truth of the universe. Um, even though it's purporting to teach you more in a direct way, it doesn't always necessarily achieve. I've found that I've learned a lot in my life from fiction and I'm very grateful for the times where I was really absorbed in, in reading fiction. Um, and so I'm not one of those people that's like, I only read nonfiction about wars, you know? Um, it's just that been my reading pattern lately but i'm always open to a novel that will ease my heart well and i'm not sure i'm recommending the whole thing it is a monstrous undertaking but if you are interested in the napoleonic wars that uh that passage uh you might get a kick out of it it's 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 a big book it's it's and it's a big book and it's not it, they needed editors back then no i think that if you want to understand the literature, history, culture, and production of 19th century Europe, you really have to get a handle on the Napoleonic Wars. So I don't know. I, I think 
teaching myself the history I never learned as an uh, uh, an ongoing life project for me. Um, that is kind of tantamount to intellectual dilettantism, but I'm just kind of like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna follow my nose and dive deep when I feel like diving deep. And it's been a great pleasure in supplementing my education. Oh yeah, that, uh, same here. Apparently somebody has written a, a series of novels that are about the Napoleonic Wars, but they're kind of a what if. And the what if is, but what if dragons existed and functioned as uh, kind of um, um, the 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 weapons of mass destruction of the Napoleonic Wars? And I have not read it yet, but it, that sounds like a fantastic conceit to me. Like, you know, so I feel like I would have to learn the Napoleonic Wars better to then understand, oh, this person is positing that the introduction of dragons would change them in the following way. But I think it's a wonderful idea. Plus, you throw uh, dragons into something. That, that author is Naomi Novik. Uh, oh, is she's it? A, a, a fabulous fantasy author. Um, and actually, she's written two of my favorite fantasy books ever. Um, they're not part of the Napoleon series. They're standalones. Um, but she wrote these two books that are absolutely amazing. One is called Spinning Silver. And it is the only fantasy book I have ever read with a Jewish protagonist. Ah. Um, and it is fabulous. It just like turns all of these, um, you know, uh, fantasy tropes on their heads. It's absolutely amazing. I cannot recommend it enough. And then the other book is Uprooted, which is like sort of a, a book about magic, but it's, it's set in an Eastern European milieu. And that just like, is so much more fun to me than like yet another, fantasy book set in it's not england um yeah albion and it's lovely and it's polish and it's just um absolutely a fantastic book so i will look those up and spinning link silver to, to total recommendations from me yeah i will link to those in the show notes so folks check those out i'm, I'm gonna look those up myself those sound amazing um the, yeah, the audiobooks are a little rough because they chose i think to emphasize the polishness by having a, a reader with a heavy accent and that kind of I didn't love that, but that choice, but, but I loved the books and I've read them multiple times, just devoured them. Yeah. That, well, that sounds right up my alley. So I am, yeah, I'm excited to check those out myself. That's, and I do want to read her uh, Napoleonic series too. That's, but that's, that's cool to, to hear that she's got that range too. That sounds, that sounds, that makes me want to read the Napoleonic ones more knowing she's got a Jewish protagonist in the other, like, okay, I can enter into this fantasy, not with that hesitation that i have to with so much fantasy like and where is this going to get deeply problematic <laughs> you know yeah I, I i haven't read the Temeraire series the napoleon series so i can't uh vouch for them but but um they're they're quite a bit of fun yeah um i also my other like big fantasy obsessions uh, lord of the rings was where i started out in like all reading <laughs> like i was problematically obsessed with those uh books for a very long time and got my first writing was fan fiction for Lord of the Rings. But um, I, in like later teenhood and adulthood have been, I just love Discworld so much. It's very much my, my comfort food and I return to it again and again and again. Um, especially in the vein of like fiction teaching you about life. I think Harry Pratchett's view on humanity is very salient and, and, and mm -hmm. sort of a wonderful mix of cynicism and, genuine heart in like a way that I really appreciate and admire um and 
I also really enjoy, and this is a little more like cheesy, but uh, I, I love Leigh Bardugo and particularly her, her series, um, like uh, um, The Six of Crows and Crooked Kingdom. Um, yeah. I haven't loved the TV show as much, but I loved those two. It was just like magical bank heist is a lovely uh, uh, mashup of genres for me. I enjoyed them a great deal. Uh, I, if you enjoyed those, check out um, Jade City by Fonda Lee. Uh, it is totally different. It would be outside of, you know, but it's fantasy set in kind of a 1920s-esque to the modern day. I mean, it covers this generation. So imagine the, the you know, kind of the Godfather, but Kung Fu movie. Like, and the magic is people who have Jade power and it is it's it's really really cool and i it was recommended to me on this show i then went and read all of them and absolutely loved them and fondly is brilliant so if you want some fantasy that's doing something very different than you see in so much fantasy check out uh, fondly's uh, jade jade city is the first i believe it's the the jade chronicles or something like that for the the trilogy but really fun and i like okay, seeing cool. people doing new things with fantasy you know stretching away from uh uh you know the the tolkien you know I, i'm a tolkien fan as well but we valorize that world because we loved it so much that then we keep going back to it and you know it's like you no know, people can do wonderful things beyond that with magic so yeah yeah, yeah. i mean it's it's an archetype and then archetypes are useful to a point and then subverting an archetype is fun i'm not sure i'm as big a fan of george r, r. martin's like what if there was more rape in lord of the rings uh kind of a vibe but uh like i did enjoy the books but i just at a certain point the misogyny just like made me kind of turn off um anyway yeah well and now i have outed myself to your audience as the biggest nerd in the history of the world <laughs> nope par for the course on this show totally normal yeah. <laughs> so uh, what else is going on with you that we should let readers know about in terms of uh, your your writing career and when where they can find your work yeah um so it's been a particularly hard time to be a freelance writer right now um you know i spent a long time building up an audience on twitter and then in the musk year year things have just really gone south i had 150 and i had 150,000 followers and then I got my account banned uh, with by doing shenanigans on the last day I had a verified check and I put back up to 30,000 followers and now Twitter's going down the drain and everyone's departing to different attack of the Twitter clones. And I, it's just really hard because all I want to do is like share my work with an audience in a way that's fruitful. Like, and I work really hard on my newsletter. Like I have written 67 essays on different sandwiches every week I try to produce something meaningful about you know American politics the right or whatever else you know is sort of a novel a, a piece of um writing that will fit the news and fit the moment or is just something I find fascinating I work super super hard on it uh you know it's been amazing writing this much um has made me a better writer uh, I also work with a lovely editor that I pay out of the subscription proceeds because, uh, you know, with Substack, you're kind of on your own and I I, I need an editor. Um, I do not 
work well without an editor. Um, and so I just like want, I want more subscribers. I want more community. Like, I think it's been great. And, and this, the amount of subscribers we have and the, um, the sort of way people interact with the post is so lovely and gratifying, but I just like, please subscribe to the sword and the sandwich. I put my heart and soul into it all the time. And it, I think is usually surprising and unique and, uh, uh, will be an addition a lovely addition to your inbox <laughs> yeah it really is excellent and i think if i mean folks please read uh, uh culture warlords as well and when you get to the end you will then want to sign up for uh, uh the the sword in the sandwich because the way the book ends i mean i i, I know you know nonfic. it's not spoilery you know in the same way but like I don't want to spoil the the experience of reading the essay at the end for folks, but it's beautiful. <laughs> the end, the essay at the end is so beautiful and 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 feels so earned by the whole book that then I yeah I want to read your descriptions of sandwiches. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's, I mean, you know, I love food writing because it, it it's never just about food. Yeah. I'm not someone who's like going to fancy restaurants and writing about tastes and textures necessarily, although I think that can be awesome. I usually am talking about the history and the culture and the migrations and the, the you know, I don't know. Sometimes I just cheat also. And like, for for example, for, for the egg sandwich, I went and talked about various uh, creation myths of the world that begin with the earth uh, hatching out of an egg. Yeah. And just like the concept of the world egg and the cosmic egg uh and i talked about that for like thousands of words um which was great fun for me and uh, i think readers appreciated it it's kind of a wild trippy ride and, and um you know rarely i think is there an essay that's you're just like this is okay you described a sandwich um i just view them as prompts to kind of get as nuts as i want and not write about staring into the maw of hell <laughs> um so it's been great fun and then also if you want staring into the mob hell there's plenty of that and especially plenty of that in culture warlords and if you like my voice i did do the audiobook with accents yes. um so uh you know check it out it's it's out there it's it's in your local library um and it's it's definitely on all the places you can buy a book and it is incredibly relevant like it is a book that it, it this book will not age uh age out i don't think anytime soon because it explains something about our culture that i wish everyone understood <laughs> deeply i don't think this is going to go out of fashion so uh unfortunately the the, the horrors of, of white supremacy and incel culture and the ways that those are intermingled and and, and are so toxic they're not going away anytime soon. So read this book so that you understand them. I, I just hope folks will pick up a copy. And then once they do, they will go, sword in the sandwich. I need more of this. <laughs> like, which again, people aren't going to understand why those connect so well until they read the book. Read the book. You'll get it. Um, <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah. You you did a better job selling my book than I did. And um, yes, I, I, I do think it was written in 2020. If You know, but I... I I think and hope it, it has legs just because certain what draws us to hate doesn't change. Yeah. Draws people to hate doesn't change. And the ways hate manifests doesn't change. And certainly the history of uh, hate in America is 
evolving, but but learning about it is is useful to understand the present day. Yeah, well, I'm going to get really polished at it because I'm recommending this book to freaking everybody. <laughs> so, oh, thank you so I, much. I will do a better job in a couple of months of describing it because I'll really have it down my my elevator pitch. But uh, I loved it. Oh, well, I I appreciate that very much, and I'm hoping to bring the same energy into book two. It's just a bit of a heavy lift. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you're taking on a lot, but it, it's so important. So I I appreciate it. Um, yeah. so totally lighter gosh this is a this is a leap you know uh, the uh, people are gonna have whiplash but we do silly polls on twitter and maybe thread now and we'll see where else we are i mean you know the company is everywhere as well so uh for our poll question we ask folks to weigh in and we've had all kinds of you know uh dim sum or pho owls or crows avocado amazing or disgusting what is your suggestion for what poll we should run this next week yeah, so I was just like, what silly question can I ask? And I'm like, I was like, who's the sexiest guy in the history of movies? Um, I shamelessly watch movies for male eye candy. Um, <laughs> I recently watched The Lost City uh, because it's about a writer who is struggling to finish her book. Uh, very goofy, but I'm like, I don't find Channing Tatum attractive. This movie is annoying to me, therefore. Um, like, I'm like he's so supposed to be man candy and I'm like where um but uh you know I recently watched in Indiana Jones and all that stuff and I'm like I just want to stare at pretty men um in film so I think the sexiest guy in the history of cinema um obviously this was formed by my uh early like my 14 year old self has still put this this particular portrayal as as the sexiest thing ever on, on film, um, Viggo Mortensen as Aragorn in Lord of the Rings. And then this is a more obscure reference maybe, but um, I also recently watched this French film called Le Cercle Rouge, which is about criminal gang, like um, in Paris. And it features Alain Delon, who's like one of the most beautiful men that has ever lived in the history of time. Uh, with this like sexy seventies mustache as like a beef and oh my god, so like who's the sexiest guy in the history of of cinema and what performance? And if you had to compare those two, which would it be? I strongly recommend if you are a person attracted to men or just want to see some cool movies, putting uh, the Fellowship of the Ring and Le Cirque Rouge back to back. Um, it would be quite a day of lovely man flesh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, I will have to find pictures of uh, Alain Delon to put next to Viggo Mortensen for the poll. Uh, you know, people can people can decide. Uh, I have not seen uh, Le Circle Rouge yet, so I'll have to check that one out. But I went looking and I found this picture of uh, Gian Maria Valente, uh, who is also in it. But I don't know if that's what he looks like in the uh, in the the film. But I'm like. He looks like a cross between uh, uh, Elaine Delon and uh, Viggo Mortensen, but maybe it's just the short beard, you know? So uh, I think that might be from a Western or something. That's not be. what he looks like in the movie, but he looks great in that movie too. I mean, he's a very handsome man as well, adding to the appeal. There's just a lot of handsome men in both movies. Um, not enough that... women in, let me tell you, in, in Lord of the Rings, there are there far too few women and they were desperately trying to shoehorn women in because there are even fewer in the books uh in terms of representation so uh that that is one of the things that is uh 
a, a problem with that series. Not enough female representation, certainly. Yeah, I don't know. I just am like, okay, you know, it's just guys being dudes. Uh, like Master and Commander <laughs> has no women in it. And I love that movie, but but um, but I was just like, cool. I'm just watching Pretty Men like do stuff. Uh, but yes, I agree. Obviously, and there's a lot like Naomi Novik is a wonderful uh example of female-driven fantasy those two books um but yeah i mean it's sort of vigo is the the ultimate like sort of rugged guy and then elaine delon is very polished so it's like which do you prefer um yes, one of those uh, polls that is also a rorschach of uh the the you know the, the what 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 is your taste you know so uh we'll let people then post pictures of who else they would want uh, on there as well who who competes with those two so what's in your to read pile? What uh, when you when you are done and you get to go? Okay, now I get to read for me. What is what is uh, waiting in your to read pile? Oh God! Well, I mean, most of my pile is research books at this point. I'm like reading like the case for Christian nationalism and like various manifestos by self-proclaimed prophets and oh. all this stuff. And my my to to be read pile is is quite grim. Uh, yeah. I've heard Babel by R.F. Quang is very good. It's also a fantasy book. Um, a friend who has very good taste recommended it. So maybe I will get to it at some point if I'm ever not drowning in the turgid soup of my own prose. Um, so, yeah, I don't have like a super satisfactory answer. To that one no, I mean, oh that's a good God. one. We'll, we will post to that one for sure. Babel by R.F. Quang. Yeah. Um, I this was re- another one recommended to me. Uh, Black Fatigue by uh, Mary Frances Winters. Somebody literally put it in my hand and said, I've got to check this out. So Black Fatigue by Mary Frances Winters is one of my to reads. So I'll link to that in the uh, in the show notes as well. Uh, but it sounds really powerful um, and and powerful in a way that is uh, inspiring and hopeful, unlike your research pile, which sounds terrible. <laughs> yeah, it's like literally just like, parenting manuals from evangelical christian christians who want you to beat your kids yes when i when my son was born we were handed one of those my 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 tell me it wasn't to train up a child was it a dobson yep dobson and oh god i that i hope that man is drowning in the lake of fire he believes in what a terrible 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 man and i look back and i'm like how what would have been the proper way to respond knowing i mean even in the moment we were like oh fuck no like there's no way we're going to <laughs> raise our child you know with the rod but how do you say to somebody who's just handed you a book like you know this is terrible right <laughs> no you based on what that book advocates you do to your children you hit them full in the face with the full heart right fuck that screw that person that person is a bad person that yeah. person is handing you a book that advocates that you beat toddlers. Yeah. There's no moral valence where that's okay. So uh, where can our viewers and listeners find you right now with the whole Twitterverse exploding? uh, And, you know, uh, where's the best place to, to keep up? Yeah, so I uh, I'm still on Twitter, which is a dying mall full of Nazis and people trying to sell crypto, but I'm still there. Um, my username is at Moby Dick Energy, um, and I'm on Blue Sky at SwordsJew.BlueSky.Social, or you just search my name. 
Um, I haven't done threads yet because I just think I don't want to do threads. Like I just, ugh, I hate the meta metaverse user experience, but we'll see. Maybe I'll succumb. I mean, as a freelancer, it is economically necessary to reach I know audiences and editors. And I just like, so I'm like, fuck it, I guess. Screw it. I guess I'm, I'm forced to keep joining these horrible sites, but um, just to be my own unpaid publicist. But um, the best place to keep up with my writing is my previously mentioned newsletter, the sword in the sandwich.substack.com. Check it out. There's a full archive. And if you become a paid subscriber, you can check out um, a novel that I wrote that is in the, the archive. Oh, okay. I need to go back through the archive. That's uh, I, I, I've got I've got some reading to catch up on there. Good. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, let me uh, do our thank yous, and then we will get to our send off. Uh, but first, I want to thank Max Oakland, who reached out and provided one of his songs for our intro. I prefer the dusk. Let Max know you like it by following him on Twitter at Max Oakland with three D's. If you're in a band and you'd like your song used on the show, I would love to highlight a listener's work like Max's song. So email notapipepublishing uh, at gmail.com about that. Thanks to Doug, the producer, for making this show sound good and taking the blame when it doesn't. And I cannot forget to mention Writers Not Writing is a production of Not A Pipe Publishing. So please go to notapipepublishing.com and check out the amazing books written by writers who didn't procrastinate too much. If you like this show, rate and review it wherever you found it. Please check out Talia's Culture Warlords, My Journey into the Dark Web of White Supremacy. Tell a friend about it. Write a short review. Uh, click on that fifth star. It makes a big difference to authors. So if you've got three minutes, make Talia's day. Click on that fifth star and tell everybody why you like the book. Um, and I am too old to say smash that like button. That sounds gross when it's coming from an old person. But please gently tap on the like button for this show as well. I would really appreciate Don't it. Don't turn your back while you do it. <laughs> yes, yes. Just, you know. Um, so Talia and I want you to remember three things this week. Uh, Talia, what's your piece of advice for everybody for this week? Um, so you may think that because you're not the type of person that can like go out and punch a fascist in the face or, you know, maybe you're more homebody or scholarly inclined or nerdy or whatever. First of all, go out and punch a fascist in the face. But second of all, join the fight against ascendant theocracy against rising fascism in any way that you feel capable in any small any small effort that you put in is necessary and worthwhile yeah yep i i and my advice feels like it doesn't connect with that but it actually does you will need to take breaks and it is okay to take breaks and then please go back to punching nazis it, it is not one or the other we must do both so uh third no matter what, no matter how much you procrastinate, remember, we're still proud of you. <laughs>